welcome to another episode of The First Incision, a CMF podcast where we look at topics at the interface of faith and healthcare that affect our Christian lives in today's world. I'm your host, Steve Fouch. In today's episode, we're going to look at the vexed issue of assisted suicide and euthanasia in a conversation with Dr. Paul Saba, a family physician from Montreal in Canada. Paul has actively fought to stop the legalisation of euthanasia in Canada for many years, and in his latest book, Made to Live, he passionately lays out the case for why euthanasia is an abandonment of patients at the end of their lives, and that instead of helping them to die, we should be helping them to live the best life they can until they die. So, uh, welcome, Paul. Good to talk to you all the way from uh, Canada. Paul, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and, uh, and your background? Well, I'm a family physician. I'm practicing in Montreal, Canada. You would say in in England, I'm a general uh, doctor or family doctor. And I've been practicing for quite a few years. I'm also a dual national, both Canadian and American, from my mom's, my mom's from the United States. I'm also of Lebanese heritage, going back over 100 years ago. My wife is... uh, of Italian heritage. So uh, my kids like to brag that they're hybrids. So um, so that's a little bit of, of my background. I've raised in a family where service uh, was important. And uh, I have a, a Christian background, which has impacted me greatly in terms of my view of the world. So you've been caught up in a bit of a, a challenging battle, I suppose you could say, through the court system in Canada for quite a few years now around the issue of Canadian legislation on assisted suicide and euthanasia. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into that and how that grew up as an issue? Right. Well, back in 2010, in the province of Quebec, where I live, Canada's made up of 10 provinces, there was a public consultation uh, asking people to submit uh, briefs on their opinion of euthanasia. Euthanasia is where the physician directly injects and ends the life of a human being. And uh, I was really quite surprised and taken aback. I I couldn't imagine that we'd be talking about euthanasia, especially looking back to the history of euthanasia in the world, uh, going even back to the Second World War. I submitted a brief, uh, did a second brief in 2012. And when I saw that the government was moving uh, towards the province was going to try to pass the euthanasia law in our province, which went against federal laws, banning taking a, a human being's life. I engaged some lawyers to help me in the cause. We tried to stop the initial legislation in 2014. The government completely ignored our attempts. When the law was passed, uh, we went to court subsequently, and we were able to get a, a temporary injunction. At that time, we had the Canadian government supporting us because there was a discrepancy between the provincial province, which was saying that it was legal to take somebody's life, and federal government, which banned taking people's lives. But then when the Prime Minister uh, Trudeau came into power, he did an about-face. The Attorney General, which is not supposed to be influenced by the federal government, but nevertheless was, uh, said exactly the opposite in the, in the court proceedings, of which they had said only uh, a few weeks previously. And so we lost on the appeal because the provincial government took us to appeal. Since 2016, assisted suicide and euthanasia is legal in Canada. And over 13,000, by some estimates, that's federal government's uh, numbers uh, as of February of this year, and probably where over 15,000 deaths uh, have happened 
what was intended to be, and they always said it would only be a handful. Uh, you Obviously, 15,000 is not a handful uh, over the last four years. Uh, it was supposed to be for terminally ill patients, and that was broadly uh, described as any anybody who was terminal or end of life or, you know, it could be one year or six months, uh, has now been extended to people with disabilities because the provincial law has now, court has said that people who are disabled are allowed to have their lives ended. And um, there are case reports of people who are just purely depressed who have been, who've been euthanized. And the government is planning to introduce legislation, which was held back because of the COVID, to extend to uh, depressed people, people with disabilities. And some people are even talking about children as they are doing in Belgium and Holland. So in, in the space of four years, you've seen a massive change in the way the care of people at the end of life has changed in Canada. But it sounds to me as if it's moving quite rapidly away from that and into a wider range of groups that would not normally be seen as terminally ill. Is that correct? And yeah. And, and that's probably the way most of the legislation is drafted. They say, well, we're going to put safeguards, but the safeguards are so loose and woolly that you can basically interpret them any way you want. They say physical, psychological suffering, and, and, and many people face with any type of distress in their life. I mean, we've seen this with COVID, how any illness can cause people great psychological distress. They're uh, also candidates for euthanasia-assisted suicide. So it's a fallacy uh, to say that the, the government can provide safeguards. The law by itself, euthanizing or uh, ending people's lives, in itself, it cannot be safeguarded. And, and they use many techniques. Uh, they describe, they, they use exaggerations. They describe a horrible suffering. This is the way they try to pass it. Uh, you hear the, the legislature saying, but horrible, agonizing suffering. Well, in a world where there's no uh, care, palliative or hospice care, which England really founded it with, uh, really was the, the founding uh, place for palliative care, we shouldn't have agonizing, horrible suffering. People get good quality care don't uh, agonize at the end of their life. There's always existential suffering. We've seen this uh, even more uh, recently with COVID pandemic. People just are very distressed. So, you know, given the very wide parameters that this has allowed many people with many years to live, quality years to live, will die needlessly. And family members won't be able to stop it. We've had in Canada families trying to stop someone, uh, for example, who was uh, greatly dis uh, distressed, psychologically, who really didn't have any, didn't have any uh, life-ending illness, and they were prevented from uh, preventing their loved one from ending his, his life, uh, even by taking court actions. People always talk about, well, it's going to be voluntary. Well, if, you know, we have in Canada, the United States, new guidelines being set up for people who have COVID, who are going to be denied access to intensive care based on not being able to uh, have a 70% chance of success, they're going to be denied ICU access. These, this is being proposed by the Ontario Health. And uh, New England Journal of Medicine actually came up with these guidelines uh, May of this year, saying that because of you know, lack of capacity, uh, we recommend these guidelines and the doctors and families should not be involved in the decision making because it will cause too much distress and and we have limited resources. So instead of trying to create more lifeboats, we're going to just let people die on the sinking ship. My goodness, that is that is really quite distressing to hear, isn't it? What do you think has driven 
this kind of, this change in thinking what what are the arguments being used in favor of such quite radical measures to end the lives of patients well first of all i think the the, the way that those proponents of euthanasia assisted suicide get around the the ethical arguments is they start by dehumanizing the person they say uh, the person will have no quality of life uh, they describe agony, they exaggerate, they describe agonizing suffering. Uh, they describe the person as, uh, you know, very sick. You know, you look back in history, the, the Germans used the same way to get rid of certain types of groups, uh, disabled children, uh, people with, with, who, who were depressed. Uh, you dehumanize the human being. They're not considered a, a fellow human being, which goes against, you know, people often think, well, we're in a modern more modern day medicine. Well, modern day medicine is based on Christian principles because that was really the the teachers of ethics historically and Sir William Osler of McGill University, where, where I'm a graduate, who was considered the father of modern day medicine, based his teaching on ethics on Christian principles. The Christian principles uh, based on the Good Samaritan model. You know, when the person was found a half dead, you know, it's described by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, uh, on the side wrote, today he would have been considered a candidate for, for euthanasia because they had really little care they could do other than bound up his wounds, wounds with uh, wine and, and, and olive oil, which is described in the story. And then, but it didn't end there. The Good Samaritan uh, took the person half dead to an inn. An inn is a hospital today because back then they didn't have hospitals and uh, said, take care of this man. And if there's any further costs involved, I will pay when I come back. So there was no limit. There was no idea of, well, we have limited capacity. We can only take care of those more likely to survive. We've gone into a triage mentality today, uh, a mentality uh, that only certain people who we think will have certain quality of life, who, who are very likely to survive, uh, sh- should survive. And, um, and this is the, the type of thinking that's, that's moving this. I think also it is the idea of, of trying to save money. But I say, you know, are you really saving money when you end somebody's life or you don't take care of that person? We have the example now of in, in Belgium uh, a few years ago, two children, nine and 12 years old with cystic fibrosis had their lives ended. And just shortly thereafter, there was a new drug, which I believe is available in England now. It's not available in Canada called Trikafta, uh, which actually cures cystic fibrosis. And you never know if this young person uh, or this older person uh, we'll be able to discover a treatment for cancer. But it's not only that. They're a member of our community. They're our fellow human beings. And a loss of a loved one is, provide, is, is a tragedy for all of us concerned, whether you're a brother, a sister, a grandparent, or if it's a son or a daughter. We mustn't go there. All the arguments used to propose by the proponents really dehumanize the value and devalue each human being. I think you've touched on, on it that- quite clearly there, but could you explain a bit more about why you think euthanasia and assisted suicide are wrong? Because because many will argue, well, the end of your life, you're in in intolerable pain, you can see no point in carrying on. Why shouldn't you have the freedom to end your life or have someone assist you to end your life uh, in a dignified manner? This is the argument that's often used. How how, how would you challenge that? Well, I say um, instead of ending a person's life in a dignified manner, which I consider undignified killing a person, give them the care they need so they can live their life to the fullest 
in a dignified manner. Give them assistance in living, not assistance in dying. We never know uh, how things will be, how things will turn around, whether there's a new treatment, whether there's a new event in a person's life. I, I've had, um, there was one woman I described in my book who was told by a doctor with severe chronic lung disease, and this was over, this is around 12 years ago, she only had a short time to live. And if euthanasia had been available, uh, she would have taken it. I know the doctor, he's very pro-euthanasia, and she's seen her grandchildren, and she, she says, uh, you know, with tears in her eyes, I'm so happy that I, I didn't follow the advice of the doctor. And at that time, it wasn't available. It was only made available uh, a year or two later. Then you have the cases of wrong diagnosis, people who are told that they have cancer, they don't have cancer. Uh, I describe in the book a gentleman who was a truck driver in his 40s, would drive down to southern United States, Mississippi, and there he got uh, a fungal infection, blastomycosis. And uh, when he came back uh, and he was coughing, they did an x-ray scan, PETs, various scans, they said, you have cancer. He said he wouldn't have gone through the investigations and the procedures uh, because he had seen family members die of lung cancer. And when they took out his lung, they found that he had a a fungal infection. So, you know, and then you have cases of, you know, I have a a woman who was uh, told that she had lung cancer, scanned everything, they they removed her lung. She ascribes it to a miracle. Uh, You know, some people would say it's amazing medical care because they took, but there was no cancer there. Uh, She didn't have cancer. We have people who've been told they only had a short time to live and they, they live many quality years. Everybody knows stories like that. I have a patient who came to my office uh, who was very pro-euthanasia, came with a cough, an engineer, uh, around 50 years old, and he even told me right away once I was describing, I think we have a problem here, uh, but let's investigate. He says, stop, doctor. Uh, I want to tell you, I I know where you stand on euthanasia. I, I want my life to end when I want it to end. I was able to convince him to go through the various tests, procedures, uh, which he initially had refused. And we found that, that he had uh, classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yesterday, he actually texted me because I, I did a book launch, uh, Zoom, uh, thanking me for saving his life. Uh, I, so I was very appreciative of that. I, I think, and then you have children. Uh, we have children who have been told, they're, they're in Netherlands and Belgium, that they're candidates for euthanasia after three or four chemotherapies. Uh, I had a young woman, uh, Nadine, who I describe in the book, who uh, at the age of 13, uh, it was in a hopeless uh, situation. And she suffered, actually suffered uh, physically. And some people say, that's good enough. You know, why go through it? She's alive and happy today. She had failed bone marrow transplant. And, and there, are, there are people in Belgian Holland say, these are ideal candidates for euthanasia. We're shortchanging human life. Young people, older people, we never know what's around the bend in the road. And that's not the way we treat human beings. We give people the chance to live. And if they do die, that they die in a dignified manner through proper medical care. And that does not include injecting them with a lethal substance. Absolutely. Uh, Paul, anybody hearing you speak will immediately be struck by how passionately and deeply you care about this subject and about the people whose lives are affected. You mentioned briefly about being at a book launch, and you've brought all of this that's been happening in your life and in your country to to the fore by writing this book, Made to Live. Can you explain a little bit more about where that title came from? Because I think there's quite a moving and very powerful story behind that. Yes, and I hope you're able to uh, show the book trailer to your audience. Back in 2009, when 
we were blessed by having a third pregnancy. Uh, my wife went to the ultrasound. We have a great healthcare here, the Royal Victoria Hospital, and they did an ultrasound. And uh, at 20 weeks, uh, they called us into the room and they say, uh, you have a problem. And I said, what do you mean by a problem? Uh, they said, well, you're, you have a child who has a heart problem and it's probably a Down syndrome baby. Uh, so you should consider this time your options. I said, what do you mean your, op- your options? Well, he says, well, you know what we're talking about. And uh, which basically was uh, uh, medical ease for uh, abortion. Mm. And um, uh, at 24, they reconfirmed it. We saw that our, our daughter, our future daughter, Jessica, was going to have a, a significant valve problem and heart problem, non-survivable, and that she probably had Downs. And they, they said, if you're going to do something, you should do it now. Actually, in Canada, abortions, you can do any time. It's, it's, there's no legislation, so you can do it any time. Uh, it's been uh, decriminalized uh, right up to time of birth. And they constantly would call my wife and they say, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And uh, at the time of just before birth, uh, they asked her very bluntly, says, uh, what do you want us to do if your, your daughter is born? And uh, they, they said to, my wife said very courageously, says, uh, and, and they even went so far as to say, and if your life is in danger. And my wife said, listen, you're going you're gonna to deliver this baby, which is, you know, they did with cesarean section. And they, she said, I've done everything to bring this pregnancy to this point. You're going to do everything to save my daughter. And uh, thankfully, we were successful. They did the cardiac procedure at uh, about six days of birth. Uh, She survived that. Uh, She's a healthy, uh, energetic uh, 11-year-old. In fact, when, uh, at the age of seven, about four years ago, I said, honey, why don't you draw a picture of our family? I was just trying to get her off the computer. Of course, she went to the computer and drew a picture of our family on the computer. And on the title, and it's in the book, uh, she wrote Made to Live. And she's the youngest, and she drew a, a bigger picture of herself uh, than the other children, and she wrote Jessica Meat, and on top, Made to Live. And I looked at her, and I looked at that little that picture, and I said, Jessica, that's, that's you. you. You were made to live. So that really has changed my whole perspective on this whole euthanasia debate, on abortion, on the preborn, on afterbirth, that we got to give every life the opportunity, the chance to live, and that we really need to support life. Not support it medically, support it with love and support it with hope, because the book really is a book of encouraging people not to give up hope. And it's behind every single statistic, there is a story like that, a human life. And that's not just one life, that life touches so many other people. And it's such a positive message to say that every one of us is made to live and our lives actually matter. In the, here in the UK, we are struggling with some of these same questions and issues. We don't have any form of euthanasia or assisted suicide here yet, despite many attempts to change the law. The main medical bodies, the Royal Colleges, have mostly stood firm on the issue. A few have adopted a neutral stance, but uh, others are, are still firmly opposed. But we know that there is a, a, a continual tide of change, and many who are looking to bring in euthanasia in this country are looking to Canada as an example, as a, a way in which this could happen, uh, as a potential model for the uh, legislation that we might have in this country. I think particularly because culturally and politically, we're quite close to each other. There's, there's a lot of similarities between Britain and Canada. What lessons have you learned from your own struggle to to challenge this in your own country that we perhaps need to think about here in Britain? 
I would say, you know, that uh, Canada is schizophrenic. Our government's schizophrenic. Schizophrenic because on the one hand, we talk about how we value life. And the other end, we're willing to uh, quickly dispose of people that we consider an inconvenience. They use all these beautiful terms of dying with dignity. Let people live with dignity. You know, uh, don't go the way of Canada. And that's my warning. I've spoken at various world bodies. Uh, and I've said at various state legislatures in the United States, and I've said, don't follow Canada. I'm, I'm ashamed of what Canada's doing. I was born in Canada. My father's born in Canada. I look to the UK as the model of holding up uh, human rights. Canada uh, likes to believe that they, they believe in human rights they, to a point. But if you're considered, if you are disabled and, and with this new legislation coming up in Canada, a disabled person could have their life ended. And many are actually wanting to have their life ended. Why is that? Because they, have, uh, they haven't been given the supports they need. They're living on, on really minimum wages, you know, uh, inadequately. I described the story of Lisa, who uh, she's the president of an organization that supports people who've been uh, victims of medical errors. And she only can eat one meal a day. I can't even write her a check to help her. Uh, the government would then take it off the, their, her social assistance. And she wants to work, but she can't work. Uh, nobody wants to hire her because, you know, maybe when this COVID, with new COVID uh, changes, people working from home, uh, that may change. Uh, she can't get physical therapy. It's not covered by our healthcare system. Uh, there, it's within the hospital, but it's only for those who are acutely have disabilities. And she can't get uh, hydrotherapy and many other things that she needs. Uh, they just want to uh, fill her up with uh, pain pills. That's not the way to treat people who have disabilities, not the way to treat people who need support. Uh, when they, they're faced with some type of uh, illness, tragic illness. Uh, many times people can become disabled. You can be very healthy. You can get a neurological disease. You can get multiple sclerosis. You can get Lou Gehrig's. Uh, we need to be investing in research for these diseases, not investing in, in ending people's lives. It's a cheap medicine. It's not medicine. It's, it's, uh, it's toxic medicine. That's how I describe assisted suicide and euthanasia. Don't go away. Canada has been going. This would be a tragedy. And all these people, uh, Lord this and Lady this, who are supporting this, you know, who have high titles, they're not thinking of, of, the, of the common person. Uh, they play on the fears of the common person. Uh, we need to provide people with quality care. And that's what the British healthcare service needs to be doing and, uh, and continue to go that way. I think we learned in the crisis of COVID that we weren't prepared. Let's be prepared for illnesses. Let's do research more neurological. You have brilliant scientists who can do that, who can find a cure for dementia, for neurological disorders, uh, for many of these diseases that humankind are faced with. We're working like uh, un unbelievably to try to uh, find a vaccine for coronavirus. Let's use that same research and investment for many of the diseases that we're faced with uh, for humankind. Let's not kill people. Let's care for people. Thank you, Paul. I think and that's uh, a very strong note on which to finish, uh, that we need to be investing in care as well as in medical research rather than looking at ending people's lives. Paul Sarber, really pleased to uh, have had a chance to talk to you today. And thank you very much for uh, your time with us. Thank you, uh, Steve. Uh, God bless you. You're, it's, it's, you're, you people who are um, out there trying to help people and encourage people to not give up. Uh, you're amazing. Paul's book, Made to Live, is available. We'll include links to places where you can purchase that and find out more about it uh, in the show notes to the podcast. Thank you, Paul, and uh, appreciate your time. God bless. God bless. Thank you.
You've been listening to First Incision, a podcast from the Christian Medical Fellowship that comes out every other Friday at 5pm UK time. Watch out for our next episode in two weeks. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this edition, do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and all the leading podcast apps. And if you can, do take a couple of minutes out to rate the podcast on your chosen app. Uh, It's great for us to get the feedback, but it also helps others to find this podcast. So until next time, stay safe.